Hello, and welcome to the Green Leads Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Rizzo. Today's episode is all about everything you've ever wanted to know about iron. I have an amazing guest named Mikhail Montgomery. She's a PhD and an RD, and she's an assistant professor at Oklahoma State University. She studies iron. Uh, she knows everything there is to know about this mineral and we really get deep into her research and why she loves iron so much. The goal of her research is to understand how cellular iron metabolism influences both health outcomes and disease progression. So we talked about things like genetic mutations in cancer, how iron is used in chemotherapy, in I, how iron plays into neurodegeneration, things like Alzheimer's. It was a really, it, this is definitely a more scientific talk than other ones we've had. But for me, who has a master's in science, but is not in the lab most of the time, there was so much to learn here. It was incredibly interesting. She's also an amazing runner. She's striving to make the Olympic trials and she's very close. She's there's an article written about her in Runner's World because she's just insane in the marathon. She balances it all by being with being a mom. She is just incredible. So this was a really interesting talk. I kept saying this. That's so fascinating because so much of what she said was so fascinating. So I'm excited for you to hear it. And let's jump into that conversation. Hi, Mikhail. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you about a bunch of different topics, mostly iron and why you love it. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your running journey. When did you start running? And I also saw, I think it was on your Twitter, that you're trying to make the Olympic trials. Can you give yeah. us an update on that? <laughs> Still trying. <laughs> well, um, so I started running in the Junior high, high school, I really wanted to be a basketball player. I love basketball. So one of the players I really looked up to uh, was on the cross-country team. And, I, you know, she's on the cross-country team, and I'm on the cross-country team. I do what she does. And then we, my family had moved out to the country that my freshman year of high school, so I wasn't old enough to drive. But I wanted to go to basketball practice. So I had to run four miles one way to the gym for basketball practice for an entire summer. And uh, that fall, I made the varsity basketball team, which I was so excited about. And then, then that spring, I won the first of my eight track and field state championships. So it was kind of a blessing. Oh, my gosh. Did you have to run four miles each way or did you have a run? No, I ran there and then I went <laughs> to practice and then I waited for someone to give me a ride home. Usually that, bummed a ride home. That is amazing. That's a story you can tell people, you know, parents say, I walked to school in the snow. <laughs> You're like, I ran four miles. Ran four miles with my basketball, you know, with my basketball shoes on my back because you, you got to keep those soles clean. So, oh man, did you, um, did, how long did you play basketball for? Uh, I played basketball that year and the next year. And then when the scholarship offers for running started coming in, basketball kind of interest faded and went more towards running. And I was able to uh, run uh, for Texas Christian University. So that's where I did my undergrad and I ran there for four years. So it was great. Amazing. And you're still running. So what's your preferred distance? 
Um, well, I mean, if I was just choosing, I wish I was quick <laughs> so that I didn't have to run so many miles all the time. But I would say I'm definitely best at the marathon distance. And so so that's what I do. Although there's not a lot of, you know, you know, there's a lot of marathons out there. I guess there's not a lot of just 100 meter dashes. So I guess maybe I'm <laughs> happy that I like the distance running. That's true. You don't really find that many uh, short races. And I, no. I feel like a lot of people are saying they would want to run a marathon. So it's it's amazing to be like, that's my, that's what I'm doing well right now. Right. So how do you balance, I'm calling it momming, which is a, a verb to me, uh, work and then also being a competitive runner? Well, um, yeah, so, so after, after I finished my running at TCU, I, I kept running in grad school. And that was actually once I could, once I lost my NCAA eligibility and could take prize money, I kept running and I'd win, you know, $100 here, $500 there. And it's actually how I paid off my student loans. <laughs> so it kind of kept me motivated in that regard. But, you know, people are like, how do you do it? It's so much. It's hard to balance. I actually, my running really took off once I added momming to the work run life balance and it was because um I really had to make a choice at that point either uh, I'm a competitive runner or I'm not <laughs> you know because before I had that flexibility of oh I don't want to wake up at 5 a.m today I'll just do it after work and then you know things happen at work and you're there late and then suddenly it didn't happen and um but once you added, I added the kid to the mix plus the career plus the running it was like okay, this is the one time slot you have to run in the day. You, you either want to use it or you're not. And that's it. That's your choice. And so I, it made me very disciplined of, well, I want to be a runner. Okay, I'm never, I'm not hitting snooze. I'm not doing that. You know, I just, and she really, we're on here talking about nutrition. I, I really upped my nutrition game despite that PhD in nutrition beforehand when my little girl came along because I wanted her to, eat well and kids eat what you eat so I knew I had to be that role model for her and that really just sort of changed my trajectory that's amazing I actually feel somewhat similar I'm not a competitive runner I just do it recreationally but I I ran throughout pregnancy up until I was about 33 weeks and um and then it was like my main goal after having my baby was to run again because I didn't want to lose that part of myself. So it's really been driving me this past year to make sure that I get back to my previous fitness level, which I actually think I've gotten better because of that maybe. So, and I feel the same way. It's interesting, like how that feel like when you have less time to do things, you're almost more motivated to do it. Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I actually, um, I was a, 245 marathon runner and then I had my little girl and um 10 months after she was born I ran 240 and then I have now run 234 so uh yeah she was a real motivator oh my gosh that is so inspirational uh that's amazing uh, wow 
Okay, I want to transition to nutrition. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you so much today is because I read this Runner's World article about you, which obviously was about your running, but it was also about your research. And in the article, this was a quote you said, not everybody has a favorite nutrient, but mine is iron. So what is it about iron that intrigues you? Well, um, true iron aficionados or nerds like myself would argue that, you know, Without iron, there is no life. You know, the the beginnings of life on Earth, whenever oxygen wasn't as readily available as it is now, started with a combination of iron and sulfur to start, kick off metabolism in those early single-celled organisms. That's the, so that's kind of, you know, you think it, you know, is life starting, but really what interests me is that it's, it's life sustaining. You absolutely need iron to live you need it to breathe you need it for energy you need it to make your dna so who you are but the flip side of that is that iron is an incredibly toxic substance if it's if you have too much of it if it's not safely stored and so understanding the just elegant ways that the body um, controls iron homeostasis to help us live, but prevent us prevent it from causing damage is just fascinating to me. Iron is such an interesting thing to me as well. I have my mom has this thing called thalassemia trait, which she passed down to me, which basically means I don't make enough hemoglobin, and I have been iron deficient my entire life, regardless of how I eat. Uh, so I've always had to take iron supplements. But I also have some of my family who has hemochromatosis, which means that they make uh -huh. too much iron. So it's really interesting to me, all these different things that happen with iron and how, I mean, obviously the diet comes into play, but it's just so different in everyone. And I feel like there's so many myths out there about it as well. Yeah, I feel- the, the genetic part is absolutely my favorite. I love teaching like nutrigenetics. That's kind of what I do. And study nutrient gene interactions, you know, and we make these sweeping dietary recommendations. We have to, you can't prescribe it to everybody, but that's, you know, my dream of where we're individually describing the, just the right amount of iron for you versus your mom versus your uncle with hemochromatosis or whoever that is. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. Do you think that that's in the pipeline at all ever for um people? i think it's the vision right now for in a, for like the national institutes of health and where they're putting their funding to what they're calling precision nutrition um that's certainly an aspect of that that we're um, looking at and then trying to move towards at least being a little bit more individual in those dietary recommendations i also think that there's a lot of myths out there that people read about iron, especially I, I deal with a lot of plant-based people, vegan, vegetarian. So they just think, well, I, I'm just going to supplement with it. Mm -hmm. And kind of, like you said, it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's so interesting that just so many people don't know a lot about it, but just think like, I need more of it. Mm, uh, well, yes. If, some, if a little's good, more is always better, right? It's the way we try to, unfortunately, is a tendency to go Exactly. And especially within the runner community, because it's kind of people, I mean, a lot of female runners do maybe are deficient in iron or have anemia. Um, and there is something called 
foot strike hemolysis. Mm -hmm. Can we talk, can you talk a little bit about that, what that is and is it common? Uh, yeah, so foot, foot strike hemolysis is a fancy way of saying when your foot hits the ground, the red blood cells that happen to be in the bottom of your foot that time break or lie, so the hemolysis. And then the body is forced to make new red blood cells. And to make new red blood cells, you need hemoglobin, which, as you said, is difficult for you to make. And hemoglobin contains iron. So to replace those red blood cells, you have to use iron that's either in the body already or coming from the diet to make more red blood cells. Um, is it is it common? Yes. I mean, at, at some level, we are all, and, and the body is equipped to deal with that. That's why we base our diet. We base our dietary recommendations on the fact that we lose iron through things like foot strike hemolysis and menstrual bleeding and other things. Um, and so it's pretty common, obviously, in runners, especially endurance runners who do that more often, striking foot striking the ground, they you know, have more foot strike hemolysis, so they break down more red blood cells, so they require additional iron to recover those losses. Um, so it is common. It is one of the, um, ex, you know, likely one of the reasons that iron deficiency is more common amongst endurance athletes is just, you know, if you try to eat like the person next to you who doesn't run two and three and four and five plus miles a day, you know, it, your iron needs are a little higher than them. And so over time that can lead to deficiency. I, interesting because I not to keep bringing it back to me, but one of the one of my little anecdotes is I one of the times my iron dipped really low. I was training for a marathon and I was supplementing, but I wasn't being great about it. And I started having cravings for ice, yeah. which is a I sign. Of, yeah, yeah, it's so weird. It's so, such a strange thing, and I didn't know what it was. And it was that I was deficient in iron, uh, and I. I from what I've been told, there's no no one really understands why that happens when you're deficient in iron. No, it's an cravings. interesting thing too because I've heard, um, you know, I knew exactly what you're talking about because anecdotally I've heard that for a lifetime and just whatever there happened to be a whole body I think of believers that think that that's not a real thing. That I'm like, no, you just hear it too much. You you see it, you see cases, you know people like. It's definitely a thing with iron deficiency. Um, although the, it's interesting that we would crave something with no nutritional value. It's funny that I ne never realized that people don't think that's real. I actually lived with roommates at the time. I was in my early 20s. And I remember talking to one of my roommates and I was like, have you noticed that I've been chewing on ice a lot? And he said to me, uh, yeah, it's really annoying. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't even notice. It took me like two weeks to realize that I was chewing the ice in my drinks. And yeah, it's definitely a thing. So you can tell someone you met someone who does that. <laughs> uh, what about plant-based people? Uh, is it inevitable that people who don't eat meat will become iron deficient? No, no, it, it is absolutely not inevitable. Um, but it, I have to counter that with saying that, you know, athletes, endurance athletes particularly, are already, already at a higher risk. For becoming iron deficient because of things like we just talked about and with plant-based athletes they are even more at risk because um it, it's the just plant-based foods aren't quite as iron dense as some of your you know 
animal-based meats and so forth. And so it's absolutely not inevitable, but certainly um, they're at a higher risk for becoming iron deficient. And what you were talking about before, where you're trying, we're trying to get to a point where iron needs are somewhat individualized. Do people absorb it differently? Yeah, uh, yeah, well, yes. Um, it, it, individuals with hemochromatosis certainly absorb it differently. Um, the thing is, we absorb heme-based iron, which we get from animal-based proteins, much differently than we absorb non-heme iron that we get from plant-based uh, iron-containing sources. And and that non-heme iron absorption is much less efficient. Um, and so even though, you know, even if you were to have 10 grams of iron from chicken and 10 grams of iron from spinach, you're likely to absorb 9.9 .9 grams of that iron from the chicken, but closer to six or seven grams of that iron from the spinach. And that's just due to a lot of factors. So we can go into about how iron is absorbed in the gut and competition amongst transporters and other nutrients. But the, the root of it is it's just not as efficiently absorbed. And so then they're requirements are even higher still. That's interesting. I didn't realize that the gut has to do with how it's absorbed. I mean, I, that makes sense. That's how we absorb all different, all nutrients is mm -hmm. in the gut. But um, I didn't realize that it, that's where it kind of differentiates the heme versus the non-heme. Yeah. So heme iron doesn't have to compete for transport um, with other nutrients versus iron. Non-heme iron is absorbed in its if we go back to think of chemistry, ferrous form, Fe2+, calcium is Ca2+, magnesium is Mg2+, and they're all absorbed by something called divalent, that's that 2+, plus, metal transporter. So they all compete with each other at the, you know, in, within the intestine. And so just efficiency of absorption goes down. You're bringing me back to my chemistry prerequisites. For there are also, <laughs> within plants, there are also substances that, um, can also um, hinder absorp iron absorption as well. Um, things like phytates and tannins that have given, like the, I don't, what's the word for it, whenever you pop culture word of just headline making, uh, anti nutrients. Yes. The anti nutrients. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't particularly care for that word, but they do also hinder iron absorption. Yes. And tannins are in tea, I know, right? Because I think that's one of the things I've talked to hemat uh, hematologists about. They told me not to drink a lot of tea. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't, phytates, I don't actually even know what foods those are in. Phytates are in most of your high fiber containing foods. So your beans, your legumes, um, those types of foods are, high, are more high in phytates. And um they do tend to also um, hinder iron absorption somewhat. So again, your just efficiency is not as high from a plant-based source. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. I want to talk about your research. So sure. I, I looked up your research and I'm going to kind of quote some things because it's, it's over my head. So I'm hoping you can break it down for us sure. a little bit. But your research looks at how iron is related to neurodegeneration, which I'm assuming is dementia and Alzheimer type. It is. Okay, okay. Have you found a link between iron and cognitive decline? Well, so not me personally. I'm following up on literature. Um, 
But what we know is that as we age, even if there is such a thing as healthy aging, right, because we all ultimately die from aging, um, if there is such a thing as healthy aging, even in healthy aged individuals, they have more or higher iron content in their brain. Iron just accumulates in the brain as we age. Other thing we know, individuals who do die from Alzheimer's disease and similar Alzheimer's types dementia have even more iron in their brains than their age-matched healthy counterparts. So there's been this recognition that iron and Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's type dementias are related, but there's a whole chicken and egg question of does, you know, the pathogenesis that causes Alzheimer's lead to iron accumulation, or does iron accumulation cause the pathogenesis that leads to Alzheimer's disease? And we're actually still really not clear on that question. But that's part of what my work is, is sort of trying to tease out. That is fascinating. I was going to ask you, do you know why there's more iron? Do you know, even though you don't know which comes first, do you know why there is more iron? Well, um, so here's something that I think people don't appreciate, which is why I give this is that warning warning about don't just supplement iron. We actually have no physiologic means of ridding our body of iron. So once it's in, it's there to stay. Um, unless you're bleeding. So through menstrual bleeding somewhat, or if you donate blood, um, so that way you can sort of get rid of iron in, in those regards. But otherwise, it's in. So it just kind of accumulates everywhere. As we age, it's going to tend to accumulate more. But why in the brain specifically and those with Alzheimer's disease, again, we're still really unclear. And we, I talk a lot about plant-based diets, but looking at the other side of the spectrum with a lot of Americans eat a lot of meat. Sometimes they're eating red meat I mean, every single day, uh -huh. do we find that that has increased iron store levels for people? Is there any link there? Um, uh, modestly, yes. I'm here in Oklahoma where beef is king. So certainly <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm aware, you know, how much we eat of that. Um, you know, um, those links haven't been made with um, Alzheimer's, but they are there with cancer. And we do um, think that, again, some of that has to do with that excess hemoglobin and the oxidative stress that can be caused by having more iron than you need. But um, I don't think we've really definitively shown that. But certainly, we do know that risk. Your risk of cancer certainly goes up if you're eating red meat, you know, m m once a day or more. <laughs> um and so what? sorry go ahead um yeah it, it's just um you know my opinion based on what we're seeing is that iron is secondary to the initiating event to alzheimer's disease and um you know we have some evidence just in my lab where we're looking at a specific mute mutation in a gene that's associated with familial dementia and when we insert that mutated gene into neurons, it really messes things up with iron metabolism. So we, so we think the iron is secondary. 
It's, it's just so interesting to think about the, how this nutrient plays such a role in this. And, I, and you mentioned cancer, so that's another field of study for you. And mm -hmm. this, is, this is a direct quote. Um, you study, quote unquote, <laughs> how genetic mutations in cancer influence tumor cell iron metabolism and the efficacy of iron, iron targeted chemotherapy. Is that was taken from your, uh, your university that you work that at. sounds like website. something I would say. <laughs> yeah, of what you're studying. So can you tell me what that means? Sure. So, um, you know, uh, the major cause of cancer is uh, why we get cancer is damage to our DNA that our cells can't repair. Um, and so once it gets becomes damaged to the point that we can't repair, um, the cells continue to grow and, and make more cells with that same damaged DNA and thus the tumor is born. And the thing about uh, tumors that make them really hard to treat is, is that um, those genetic mutations uh, happen really quickly. So we evolve over time, like we walk upright now, and we're not as hairy as we used to be, and that's taken a lot of time. Tumors evolve really, really rapidly. You hear that from someone who has breast cancer, and they go through treatment, and they're completely cured, and then it comes back, and the breast cancer is completely different. That's how quickly tumors can evolve, and they do it through these genetic mutations. We call it drivers of genetic mutations. So there are some that happen more common than others, and it makes sense. So my so I talked about my favorite gene, nutrient is iron. My favorite gene is one called P53, and it's the most commonly mutated gene in all human cancers. And the reason cancers love to mutate this gene is because whenever they mutate it and it stops working, they can just grow as quickly as they want. Now, no, a completely unregulated cell growth. And it does a lot of other things, too. But it's actually mutated in half of all human cancers. 50% of the time, whether you have breast cancer, prostate cancer, skin cancer, half the time it's mutated. Um, so we've really been studying what happens to tumor cell iron metabolism when that gene gets mutated? Is it normal that tumor cells metabolize iron? Or just, So just like you and me and the bacteria in our gut and all of our pets, we, they all, we all require iron to live. Iron is life-sustaining, even for cancer cells. And because they grow so fast, they actually have much higher requirements for iron than we do. And so they take up even more iron than healthy cells. And so what well, my work has, so we've known that for a long time. And so you think the whole, well, we just take away their iron, right? Of course, take away the iron. Well, we need iron. <laughs> so we can't take, take it away from them. You take it away from us then we don't live. And so we've been really trying to exploit the fact that they take up way more iron and um, develop therapies that actually um, kill them from iron toxicity. That way we still stay healthy and the cancer cells die because they have more than they need. Is that what you mean by iron-targeted chemotherapies? Yeah. So, you know, for, for probably in the, through the 70s, 80s, 90s, Oh, there was a lot of research on, can we use iron chelators as cancer therapy? Can we take away the iron from the tumor? 
And um, with some, uh, again, uh, some efficacy, it certainly slows tumor growth, but there's a lot of side effects associated with them. And so um, in 2010, there was, or 2012, actually, there was a sort of new mode of iron-related cell death discovered. And um, it turns out when cells have this, my favorite genetic mutation, they're much more sensitive to it. And so we've been, we've demonstrated that you can actually um, kill those cells through iron overload, but it's not, it's not even so much that it would hurt you. It's just, we just manipulate the tumor cells inability to handle it well anymore. So it's kind of a neat approach because we don't take away iron from the person. We just exploit the tumor cells vulnerabilities. Is all of this being researched and implemented or just still kind of research to find what you guys can find and hoping that in the future this is used? For um, you know, we, we've been putting that, we've published that work and it's come out. And I think um, certainly we're trying to make that more translational. Okay, you know, we've seen it in cells. We can see it in animals. You know, can we actually do this in people? And, um, I, well, I can go through a whole spiel of FDA regulation, but first thing, right, is do we have to make sure that the some of the drugs that, just like anything, um, you have to work worry, work out their safety profiles first and how are they going to be given and, and dosed. And so uh, those are in early stages of some of those trials. So I think... Um, is coming along. I, and all of this, like I, I keep saying it's fascinating, but it really is because it's just things that I feel like the general public, like myself, we know about iron, but we don't know about this kind of detailed research that's being done. Is there anything else that I, I missed that, that you're working on? Um, I mean, I, love it. <laughs> I have some new, new stuff that we're working on where you know, we, we're really, something else that I'm interested in uh, from a dietary standpoint is, is obesity. In the nutrition department, of course, I'm interested in that. And we think of obesity as a, as a disorder too much, right? Too much, too, eating more than you need. But um, iron deficiency is actually more common um, in obese, especially children. And, and it's seen in obese adults as well. And we're really interested in that aspect and um, sort of how that's being regulated and, and why that's the case. And there's a lot of factors that can contribute to that, just dietary choices, of course, being the first thing that might come to mind. But um, other things happen as well at the molecular level, which is really more what I'm interested in. I have learned, I appreciate what you do very much. Uh, people don't particularly care for being told what to eat. And I don't like to try to tell them what they should eat. And so um, I'm really interested in understanding more what's happening at the at the molecular part of things. Yes, people don't love me. Unless they, I always say to people that I'm not telling them what to eat unless they ask. <laughs> Because I don't want to, I don't want to get involved either, unless someone really wants the advice. Right. Well, this has all been, like I keep saying, super interesting. I really want people to learn more. If they want to learn more about your, you and your research in iron, where can they find more from you? Well, I, um, you know, so I work at Oklahoma State University. So if you go 
to Oklahoma State University Department of Nutritional Sciences website, there's all my contact information, my publish work, what I'm funded for now. So that would tell you what I'm currently working on and those types of information for research. Um, I never changed my Twitter handle. It's actually at Mikkel Davis, which is my maiden name, but for Mikkel Montgomery. So if you really want the uh, sort of funnier momming <laughs> running sides of my story is more what I do there. So both of those are good ways to reach out to me. And I, I'm actually pretty responsive to email. <laughs> Yes, I, I actually don't even have Twitter, but I you can look people up on Twitter without having Twitter. And I was reading some of your tweets or the amount that they allowed me to read, and I was very entertained. So <laughs> everyone should go follow you. Well, yeah, I mean, you kind of got to laugh at yourself or at least be entertained. I, I found it's interesting. I think the thing that I hope people appreciate for me on Twitter and anything what I'm talking about is just honesty the one thing that i really when i first really wanted to be a you know an elite runner i was always looking for workouts or diets or what are people eating or how are they training or what are their workouts look like and i don't know why everybody thinks it's a secret i mean i like my analogy is you know in nasa could full on write down detailed instructions for how to fly a rocket to to mars and i probably couldn't pull it off right <laughs> But at least I have a better understanding and appreciation about what it takes. You know, I just because you know every single workout and training thing I've done doesn't mean you're going to beat me in a marathon. But I hope you can appreciate, you know, what it takes and maybe get some ideas for improving your performance. So I throw it all out there. I appreciate it. I also appreciate just putting science-based information out there because there's so much stuff out there that is not science-based. Yeah, so... Yeah. This has been great and thank you for doing it. Well, yeah, thanks for having me again. And so, you know, feel free if I need to clear up anything, reach out. Awesome. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Natalie Rizzo. And if you want to learn more from me, follow me on social media at Greenleets or visit my website at greenleets.com.